If you would, please turn to Psalm 130. A couple of weeks ago, Ryan preached on Psalm 122 and mentioned how it was one of the psalms of ascents or songs of going up. Psalm 130 is in the same collection of 15 short psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. And they are psalms of journey. And although we're not aware of all the details of how these psalms were used in Jewish worship, it is certain they aided the children of Israel in their various travels made to Jerusalem throughout the year to worship at the temple and celebrate the feasts. As the children of Israel made these long ascents to the holy city, they could hear one another singing these psalms of affliction and deliverance and the exalted glory of God. And through these songs of hope, they worshiped God and encouraged one another in their pilgrimage. While the idea of physical journeys is attached to these psalms, their greater significance is the spiritual pilgrimage they lead us through. Psalms of ascents were sung and are to be sung to assist all the children of Abraham in our journeys through the sufferings and trials of this life to our eternal rest in Christ. For just as Israel, we have been displaced from God in our sin and brokenness, and our walk in this world is a pilgrim's walk. And as we travel this difficult path of discipleship, we need the encouragement of songs. How important it is that we sing of the glories of God, not only to Him, but to each other, to aid one another and, and inspire and strengthen one another in our journey home. The Psalm of Ascents before us this morning is one of those journeys. It is a pilgrimage of waiting on God in hope. And such a journey is of the utmost importance, for it is a journey of the nurturing of a penitent heart which rests in God's mercy alone. But before we look at Psalm 130 this morning, let us look to our Heavenly Father for guidance. Sovereign Father, author and sustainer of all that is, you care for all things, even the sparrows and the flowers of the field. You are the one upon whom we completely depend. And so we look to you this morning for illumination of your word. Teach us, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, that we may be changed by it. Give us receptive hearts which are drawn closer to you through Christ by the loving impulse of your Spirit. Amen. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. The Psalms of Ascents are Psalms of Journey, but as the title signifies, the journey is one of rising to a higher place. They are songs of going up. Physically, we would speak of ascending to the holy city on Mount Zion. Jerusalem is surrounded by valleys which travelers would need to pass through on their way up to the temple. On their long journeys, they would sing. And as the crowds would draw closer and closer to God's Old Testament center of worship, their corporate voices would rise to a crescendo of praise and adoration. But as I said, the journey of the Psalms of Ascents are more than physical movement and the raising of voices. There is a movement of the soul to a higher place. For these Psalms are spiritual journeys. And as we look at Psalm 130, we see that it is a journey in the assurance of a sinner's redemption and the hope which anxiously waits for the fulfillment of God's redemptive promise. Notice the movements in this psalm. The psalmist moves from a terrifying fear of judgment to a reverent fear of glorifying God. He moves from being unable to stand before the presence of God to a place of anxiously waiting for the Lord. He moves from a place of being in the depths of hopelessness to putting all his hope in God. And he moves from being consumed or swallowed by his sin to being forgiven and redeemed. What a transformation we see in these eight verses. What a going up in his journey. What an ascending from the depths of despair to the steadfast love of God. As we look at this psalm this morning, I would like us to focus on three key points in the progression of this journey of redemption. First, the depths of despair that the realization of our sin brings. Then second, that the remedy for that despair can be found only in the forgiveness God brings. And then finally, that the life of the forgiven sinner is a life of waiting in hope. So let's look first at the psalmist's cry for relief and the cause for that cry. The author begins this psalm in deep despair, pleading for God's mercy. Verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Many tragedies in life can bring great sorrows. Death and heartbreak, illness and affliction routinely knock at our doors. And these things can overwhelm us with grief and lament. So that we find ourselves with this psalmist who, in the depths of his great despair, cries out to God. From the deep places of his darkness, the psalmist pleads for God's mercy. Such cries are common in the psalms. 
And not only do we see supplications to God for mercy over life's calamities, but many of the Psalms are cries for relief from enemies who assail and assault the people of God. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Or Psalm 83, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. We find such refrains frequently in this songbook because David and others are brought low by the enemies of God. And in their despair, they cry out to the Lord for salvation. But as we look at this psalm, what do we find is the occasion for the psalmist's despair? What has brought him to the depths of crying out to God? There is no listing of tragedy that has befallen him, no illness or death, no great calamity in his life, no invading forces which threaten his well-being. No, the psalmist is not looking outward at unfortunate circumstances or enemies who assail him. Instead, we see in verse 3 that he is looking inward. He has gained an introspective view of himself and is overwhelmed at what he sees. For he recognizes his sinfulness. And he bemoans the thought that if God would count his sin against him, he is forever doomed. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is looking inward at an enemy he knows is greater than all those who may stand against him, an enemy that is greater than tragedy and death. The psalmist is brought to the depths of despair because he feels the weight of his unholiness. And there is no greater enemy. For enemies from without can kill the body. But as Jesus reminds us, they cannot touch the soul. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Tragedy and those who plot evil certainly may kill the body. But this unholy enemy within is the archenemy of our soul, who destroys our very being and condemns us. The psalmist feels the weight of this. And just as Isaiah, when he came face to face with his sinfulness, cried, Woe is me, for I am undone. The psalmist cries to God. He cries for mercy, because mercy is his only cry. He makes his plea to the very one who is his judge. For it is God who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do we feel this same weight of what it means to be sinful? 
not necessarily to be the most heinous or vile and despicable person you know, but simply to be sinful. This is what haunts the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Is there even one of us who is not owned by this description? Maybe we have not perpetrated excessively evil deeds in our lives. Maybe we have not committed a list of really awful sins, but we cannot for one minute think that this excuses us or gives us some place to stand before God. The most righteous fallen person in this world lies within the domain of the condemning power of their own sinful nature, even if they have not committed one sinful act. For our acts of sin are simply our sinful nature manifesting itself in our lives. That sin nature lives in our soul, and it is the very heartbeat of our sinfulness. And even if we are providentially prohibited from those evil actions, that beating heart of sin is still very alive in us. So alive that even our so-called righteous actions, which we do not consider to be sin, are actuated by this heart of sin and so are inescapably tainted with our unholiness. We have no argument no case to plead before our judge. We are by nature children of wrath. This is the weight of sin on us. And our unredeemed actions, whether we consider them to be good or evil, are simply the offspring of a heart that is vile and corrupt. Jesus tells us what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Our acts of sin are great, but Jesus says they have a mother who births them, a corrupted heart that wears an even greater banner of sinful than our actions do beating within every fallen person born into this world is a heart that has an unquenchable desire and appetite for evil. And possessing such a heart puts us all in the same company with this psalmist. Now I know this paints a very dark picture of ourselves, but it is the true portrait the psalmist has come face to face with. And possessing such a heart puts us all, oh, I'm sorry, and there is no escape for any who attempt to stand before God. And so no matter who we are or what we have or haven't done, we must find ourselves with the psalmist asking, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And if we listen with honest ears, we find our sinful hearts rightly answering back, None of us, especially me. And so our redemptive journey of ascents begins at this point of self-discovery, which causes us to cry out to God for mercy. 
But our second stop in this journey this psalm takes us uh, <clears throat> is to the remedy of our all-merciful God provides for our sin-laden condition. This darkness of the human soul is important to understand because it is on the backdrop of this darkness that the light of grace shines its true colors, the colors of the amazing depth of God's love and forgiveness and mercy toward a sinner who has nothing in them but enmity and animosity toward their Creator. And it is only to the degree that we understand our sinfulness that we will understand the depths of God's redeeming grace. For if we do not view ourselves as quite this bad, then we do not view grace as quite so amazing. I said a moment ago that the psalmist makes his plea for mercy to the one who is his judge. Now, if we plead to a judge for mercy after being convicted of an unspeakable crime, what is our expectation? Our hope is that we might receive a little leniency. The judge might lighten the sentence a bit, but we still expect to bear the responsibility for our transgression. But what is the response of this judge? On the one hand, he is perfectly righteous and just, so there is no such thing as lightening the sentence in his courtroom. Every penny of our sin must be paid. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 26, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The judge of the universe, in order to remain just, must execute the due sentence of our crimes. And the wages of sin, any sin, is death. His justice demands full payment not leniency. But on the other hand, if this judge exercises his mercy upon a transgressor, it is not simply a little leniency. It is perfect and complete forgiveness. And just as the psalmist was awakened to the plight of his sin, he is also awakened to the depth of God's mercy. On the heels of the condemning sentence of verse 3, the psalmist declares in a cry of freedom, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The mercy of this judge is not the lessening of a just sentence. It is the eradication of it. Your sin is gone, carried away, just as the scapegoat carried away the sin of the Old Testament people as far as the east is from the west. With God, it is all or nothing. You either owe all that your sin has merited, or by the mercy of this judge, you owe none of it. How great is his mercy! It endures forever. But in this forgiveness... How can we say that God is not sacrificing His justice on this altar of His mercy? I said a moment ago that the mercy of this judge is the eradication of your just sentence. That is not the complete truth. It is gone from you, 
But instead of disappearing, instead of simply vanishing in the courtroom of God, it is legally transferred. Just as the sins of Israel were typically transferred to the goat that was led away into the wilderness, those sins and ours were truly transferred to Jesus. Jesus was sacrificed on the altar of God's mercy. Christ stands as the sin bearer for his people. And he stands in this position because he is the only one who remains standing when the question is asked, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Jesus stands. He stands as the one person who fulfilled God's law of holiness. He stands as the one who had a heart untainted by sin, who lived only for the glory of the Father. And so he stands as our scapegoat and our paschal lamb, who is able to carry the weight of our sin and give to us his perfect righteousness. And so he stands as the answer for how God is at the same time just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. And in so doing, we now stand before God covered with the radiance of Christ. In God's mercy, he perfectly fulfills his justice. But the psalmist at the end of verse 4 speaks of this forgiveness engendering a fear of God. Now, why would such an overwhelming exercise of forgiveness cause fear? Well, don't be mistaken. Fear in this sense is as far from the fear the psalmist began his journey with as God's redemption is from his judgment. God's forgiveness is such an overwhelmingly great work that it brings the psalmist to a place of being awestruck. This is the fear of revering the wonderful majesty of a God who can actually forgive a sinner like him and like me. And not only can he forgive the sinner, but in his forgiveness he retains the integrity of his own righteousness. What a magnificent God. What a glorious forgiveness. We should all stand in reverent fear before such a merciful Redeemer. By way of God's redeeming love, the psalmist receives forgiveness. He lays nothing before God. He has nothing to lay before God except his sinfulness. And as he lays his sinfulness before his judge, he falls, not into the depths of what his sin deserves, but into the depths of God's grace and forgiveness and redemption. The psalmist begins this psalm in overwhelming depth of judgment, and he ends this psalm in the overwhelming depths of God's love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. In Christ, the psalmist finds forgiveness, for Christ stands as the only redeemer for the human race. And in him, we are completely forgiven by the one who is our righteous judge. This ought to be jaw-dropping to us. 
What does it mean to be forgiven by God? We must be careful not to think of God's forgiveness as nothing more than the way we forgive one another. His forgiveness is not like ours. When a brother or sister in Christ forgives me, my sin against them is excused, but it is not taken away by their forgiveness. I am not made clean and holy by their pardon. But the divine forgiveness of God is the qualitative gift of erasing the iniquity of our lives. And he accomplishes this divine forgiveness through redemption. It flows to us from the throne of grace through the blood of Christ. And it is this divine forgiveness which enables us to forgive one another. What does it mean to be forgiven by God? It means God bestows true freedom from our naturally cursed and fallen condition. And where there is freedom from our sin, there is freedom to live a new life with and for God. That is the gift of grace. And grace shines its color so brightly in the lives of redeemed sinners. But as redeemed sinners, we have not yet received the fullness of the glory of this new life. And that brings us to our final point in this journey. The life of the forgiven sinner is a life of waiting in hope. Verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. I said at the beginning, this psalm is about waiting on the Lord in hope. And this psalm teaches us not only what waiting looks like for the child of God, but how the life of faith is a life lived in hope. As the author of Hebrews tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The journey of the Christian life is a pilgrimage toward a glorious existence with God, which we currently do not experience the fullness of. We have not yet risen to that glory. Our glorious life is yet unseen, hidden in Christ, and we now live in hope of what will be. And so we wait as we place our hope and trust in the promise of His redemption. But we are not to misunderstand the Christian's hope. For it is not simply the desire or longing that something might be. No, it is the conviction, the assurance of a reality that is, but is not yet present to us. On this side of the fulfillment of God's promise, we must wait. And therefore, the life of faith is a life lived in hope. And faith focuses our attention and our supplications toward the author of that life to come, who has given us the promise of redemption. And so the psalmist says, in his word, I hope, the word of God's promise. If someone makes a serious commitment, it is likely they'll say, I give you my word on that. Well, God gives us his word the word of his covenant promise, and the psalmist rests in God's covenant faithfulness. 
But what is the, what is the psalmist waiting for in that covenant promise? What are we waiting for? We are waiting for our full redemption. When this enemy within us suffers its final defeat, when sin and death, the death that it produces, will be no more, we are waiting to be cleansed and made holy. We are waiting for the glory of Christ to be revealed in us. We are waiting for our iniquity to be gone. And so we wait in glorious anticipation. Verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. As the watchmen through the night earnestly and anxiously look for the breaking of the dawn, even more so we long for the breaking of a new dawn, the dawn of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. We long for the dawning of the life to come when that which we now live in hope for becomes ours. The psalmist reinforces his glorious anticipation of that new dawn by repeating himself, more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Are our lives characterized by waiting on the Lord in hope? Our waiting is far more than simply learning to be patient. The hope that is in us feeds our patience and sustains us in our journey of going up. Walking uphill is difficult. It can wear us out. But hope is there to be our companion. It sets Christ before us and the eternal rest that he promises at our journey's end. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress speaks of Christian having to climb the hill difficulty, for it was the only path that led to the celestial city and to life. And it is our path, just as it was our Savior's path. But as Christian was renewed in his strength by meditating upon the promises that were given to him, so our strength is renewed by meditating upon the word of promise given to us. And so let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, along with this psalmist, we too are on a journey of redemption. Our journey begins in the realization of our sin, where we come to know that if the Lord should mark our iniquities, we could not stand. And the only plea left to us is for God's mercy. That mercy, unsustained by any attempts at self-righteousness, is more than sufficient to carry the weight of our sins. For that mercy flows from the perfect righteousness of Christ. The eternal Son of God made a journey. 
He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He took upon himself a human nature and descended into a state of humiliation, wherein he shackled his holy humanity to our iniquity. He became sin for us and subjected himself to the depths of its sorrows, even the sorrow of death itself. Jesus bound himself to our tomb. But this wasn't the end of his journey. For the one who descended also ascended. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms of Ascents. He was raised from death to a new life. He was raised from humiliation to exaltation. He ascended to the glory he had with the Father from all eternity. His journey of ascents raised him to now have a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And now our journey takes a new direction of ascending to the heavenly Jerusalem. Because as Paul tells us, Christ was raised for our justification. And our journey has a new companion as we are now in Christ and His Spirit now lives in us, giving us hope and faith and perseverance until our journey's end. And in earnest anticipation of the blessed hope that is before us, we wait as we place our hope in His Word his word of promise that the Lord will be fully ours and we will be fully his. In the final verses, the psalmist encourages Israel to hope in that word of promise. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not only is the psalmist convinced that God's mercy is able to redeem him from all his sins, he is convinced that it is able to redeem all who place their trust in Christ. For the sufficiency of God's redemption is endless. It is a plentiful redemption, an overwhelming redemption. And I can only encourage you if you have not made this journey of redemption, if you have not ascended from the reality of your sinfulness to the glory that is to be revealed in the children of God, place your hope and your trust in the one who is the word of promise from the Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father of endless mercy and redeeming love, we ask that you comfort each of us in our journey home to you. We ask that you draw many more to join us in our journey. As you raise us up, let us raise our voices in thanksgiving and praise to you. For you go before us as you went before the children of Israel in the wilderness. Be our cloud by day and the flaming light of our hearts by night that we may follow you. In our precious Savior, we pray. Amen.